Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with bombings in Iran that killed over 100 and wounded over 200, observing the fourth anniversary of the U.S. drone strike that killed the head of Iran's Quds Force, General Soleimani. This following an Israeli drone strike yesterday that killed a top Hamas official in Beirut. Joining us to assess whether these provocations will spark a wider war in the Middle East is Abbas Malani, Director of Iranian Studies and Professor at the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University, who until 1986 taught at Tehran's university's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the university's Center for International Relations. His books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. Then, with House Speaker Johnson leading a delegation of Republicans to the southern border today to grandstand as they weaponize immigration rather than deal with a serious issue which clearly needs reform and resolution, we will speak with Lee Gallant, a lawyer at the ACLU's National Office in New York and a professor at Columbia Law School. Widely recognized as one of the country's leading public interest lawyers, he has argued some of the country's highest profile cases before the Supreme Court and virtually every federal court of appeals in the country, including a national class actions challenge to the Trump administration's family separation policies, successful challenges to the Trump administration's first and second asylum bans, and the first case challenging the Trump Muslim ban. Then finally, we'll explore the root causes of the immigration crisis that involves the human flow of immigrants from around the world, and in particular from Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua and Guatemala, as well as Mexico, which is being demagogued with toxic partisanship that will intensify in this crucial election year. Joining us is Maureen Meyer the Vice President for Programs at the Washington Office of Latin America, where she previously spent 14 years leading their Mexico program with a special focus on analyzing U.S.-Mexico security policies and advocation for greater protections for migrants and asylum seekers in Mexico and at the U.S.-Mexico border. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Abbas Malani, the Director of Iranian Studies and a professor at the Center on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University, who until 1986 taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Center for International Relations. 
His books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. Welcome to Background Briefing, Abbas Milani. Thank you for having me, and uh, uh, happy, albeit benighted, New Year. <laughs> well, indeed, and uh, today, of course, there was a, a bombing in southern city in Iran where a procession of mourners observing the fourth anniversary of the assassination of the head of the Quds Force, General Soleimani, were blown up. Over 100 were killed and over 200 were wounded in two blasts, the first of which attracted a lot of EMT and and rescue personnel, and then the second bomb, of course, blew up those people, along with a lot of the people in the procession and those observing. So this happened on this day, of course, which was also a remembrance of Soleimani's death, was the reason why the head of Hezbollah made a speech today, in Nasrallah, in which he said that the killing yesterday of the Hamas official, who was in effect the Hamas ambassador to Hezbollah, will not go unpunished. And he said the battle will be boundless without rules and uh, that there'll be no ceilings and uh, that Israel will regret it. So let's start with Nasrallah Abbas. How far did he take this? I mean, he ended up his speech by saying this will not go unpunished, but he didn't actually call for a war. He threatened war, but didn't actually call for it. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, he was very cautious. Uh, He needed to say something that sounded tough, uh, but also needed to say something that would not trigger war. I think uh, Hezbollah and the Islamic Republic, neither of them, are in a position now to engage in a full-scale war with Israel. And uh, at the same time, they can't remain silent. A uh, number of attacks that Israel has made against Iranian officials in um, Syria uh, and uh, killing uh, virtually the number two guy in the Oats Brigade, as you mentioned, that happened uh, only recently, uh, Mr. Razi uh, in Syria, uh, and now the number two guy in Hamas. Uh, both of these, I think, um, the regime and Hezbollah as his proxy needed to say something that sounded tough, but also doesn't uh, elevate the tensions to a level of war. Uh, they sound, Khamenei also issued a statement about uh, uh, the bombing in Tehran. And they both sound to me like a, a line from uh, Lear. I don't remember the exact line, but it says something to the effect, I know I will do things, I know not what they are. Uh, and uh, it is threatening, uh, but it is also less than a declaration that uh, we want a full-scale war. But the bombing was in Kerman, wasn't it? The southern city in Iran? <laughs> the bombing was in Kerman. It's a procession that was going to uh, uh, mourn the fourth year of the assassination of uh, Soleimani. The regime had been planning uh, a big fourth-year anniversary. Um, it's very well choreographed, like everything about Soleimani, uh, Soleimani uh, daughters and his wife uh, and some commanders of the IRGC met with uh, Khamenei yesterday uh, and the meeting went viral because Khamenei said something that was really strange. He basically said that God speaks uh, through him 
that he gave a sermon 20 years ago that Soleimani was in, and the speech uh, was God's words, uh, and God spoke through him. And, you know, it went viral. Many people objected to it as being heretical. So they had been planning an event, but clearly this one uh, sort of derailed that plan and put it on a different uh, path. Uh, and Mr. Uh, Khamenei's statement that I just read, which just issued, was also uh, full of uh, anger, uh, threats. Uh, it doesn't mention Israel as a culprit, although some of his uh, uh, regime officials have declared that to be. Uh, it doesn't seem to me to be the kind of thing that, um, that Israel would do. I, I you know, Israel has done a lot of assassinations in Iran. They have done a lot of uh, uh, sabotage, uh, sabotage the nuclear facilities, uh, killed uh, nuclear uh, scientists. But go, going randomly against uh, people, uh, although uh, I, I suspect almost everybody who was in that procession uh, was a, mem- a close member of the regime, because at this time the regime can't get anyone other than its own members to participate in this political uh, theater. Uh, but nevertheless, they were uh, citizens, uh, and uh, it doesn't seem to be their work, um, although the Hamas and the Razi hit were clearly uh, had every indication that they were uh, Israel's work. So if these bombings in Iran weren't Israel, uh, weren't conducted by Israel or Israeli intelligence assets inside of Iran, which clearly exist. Who else would have done this? I I really don't know, uh, but and it might be that uh, Israel has done it. The regime, as I said, some in the regime have already accused Israel, but Khamenei clearly avoided that. And he said, whoever the enemies are who committed this will pay a heavy price. Uh, and uh, there are many people who would uh, want Iran. Uh, to uh, be destabilized and maybe get into a confrontation with Israel. There are a lot of people who think that uh, Israel should take on Iran. Uh, uh, there are people within Israel who think that. There are people within the Iranian diaspora who think that. Uh, so there are lots of people who would want uh, a full confrontation between Iran and Israel. I, I think the regime knows this and is gingerly trying to walk away from it without looking like they're caving in. Uh, and thus, uh, I, I don't know who could have done it. Uh, and in all of this, I think, uh, what uh, makes the situation more complicated and what makes the regime use the moment, that, at least tactically, to its uh, propaganda purposes, are announcements like the announcements of uh, two members of the Netanyahu government that we're going to drive uh, all Ga- uh, citizens of Gaza away from Gaza. This has to become essentially devoid of uh, the Palestinians. Those kinds of things play into um, this uh, the regime's narrative, and I think they're counterproductive. Uh, they're also against the law, as I'm sure you know, a group of Israeli intellectuals and political figures just issued a statement asking the judiciary to take action against these kinds of statements. They know these kinds of statements are not uh, productive and they're not uh, helping 
the long-term uh, prospects for Israel in the region. Well, I think there's not much doubt that uh, Netanyahu is holding on to power uh, as long as this war goes on, and he said it's going to go on for months. It's also pretty clear that Netanyahu, along with Putin, would prefer Trump than Biden, and Biden's embrace of Netanyahu is costing him dearly, not just in Michigan, which is a key swing state with the Arab-American vote, but also with young Democrats who are defecting in droves from the Democratic Party, and they may not vote when indeed their vote will be critical because this will be a very close election. So is there something going on there? I mean, there's no secret that Netanyahu for the longest time has wanted to go to war against Iran, but he's also wanted the United States to drag them into it as well. And Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin recently warned his counterpart, head of the IDF, not to provoke Hezbollah. Well, they sure did that yesterday with the drone strike on the number two member of, of Hamas. So what's going on in that regard? Now that the Israeli IDF is fully mobilized, are they really thinking that maybe this is the time to both strike Hezbollah and Iran? You know, I, I think, uh, as you say, uh, clearly, maybe Mr. Netanyahu and some in his cabinet think that uh, and think this is the right moment. Uh, I certainly don't believe that it is the right moment because uh, none of Israel's allies are up for this fight. Uh, if you read the statements from France, the statements from the EU, statements from even the Biden administration, uh, the Biden administration has, has stood by uh Israel, but it does also make it very clear that, that this notion of driving people out of Gaza is against international law and it cannot be done, and that the reoccupation of Gaza is not an option. So they have made some uh, positions that is different. Uh, and I believe from everything I read, uh, I, I'm not an expert in Israeli politics, but I read uh, what comes out of Israel media and some of their public intellectuals. Um, Israel is still um, a, a democracy, and I think um, many people see this uh, moment as being fraught for the future of uh, Israel. Uh, you know, if Israel is to remain a democracy, and I hope it does, uh, it, it needs to understand that some of these uh, articulations from uh, ministers uh, of uh, the Israeli government uh, are not conducive to the image of Israel and to the reality of Israel uh, as a, a democracy. And there are many people, I think, uh, who understand um, the complexity of the situation. I, I realize that Hamas is a terrorist organization, and what they did in uh, October is uh, absolutely uh, repugnant uh, to go and kill 1,400 uh, citizens. Uh, is atrocious, but so is killing uh, 22,000. Uh, and uh, in the long run, uh, that is, I think, uh, not going to be helpful to Israeli democracy and to the security of Israel. I think uh, here again, I think the Biden administration realizes this, uh, Israel's allies in Europe realize this, that peace cannot come to that area unless the rights of Palestinians for a state is recognized. And 
the Palestinians have to recognize that they won't get the state unless they get their act together and recognize that Israel is there to stay and it's not going to go anywhere. And Nasrallah ended his speech repeating this uh, slogan uh, from river to the sea, it's all a Palestinian state and nothing but a Palestinian state. That's not going to fly. That's not going to help create a two-state solution. And Hezbollah and its supporters in Iran have been the chief enemies of a two-state solution, and as well as some of the right-wing politicians in Israel. They sort of feed into one another's frenzy and continue uh, this uh, very complicated situation. It's nothing the Biden administration or Macron or anybody else can single-handedly solve. Every administration in this country's uh, from Kissinger to Nixon to Ford, everybody has found uh, Reagan, uh, Donald Trump. They have tried to find a solution, and it has not been easy uh, because there are these two forces, these radical forces that don't accept the reality that these are two people, both are living there and going to live there and cannot be cleansed. And you have to find a solution for a peaceful two-state reality, two-state that recognizes that the other one has the right to exist. You can't have a Palestinian state led by Hamas. I understand that. Hamas is a terrorist organization. It doesn't give a darn about Palestinian lives, and it certainly doesn't give a darn about Israeli lives. So they can't be running a state next to anybody. Nobody will accept that. But neither is acceptable to say that the Palestinians here have to leave and uh, two million people have to be displaced. Uh, so, um, right. Well, unfortunately, though, just in closing, Abbas, people have forgotten, and particularly you know, young Americans who are outraged by Israel's bombing and destruction of Gaza, have forgotten what Hamas did on October the 7th. They, they, they instigated this war. And they provoked Israel, and they obviously got the response that they wanted because uh, now Hamas is incredibly popular in the Arab world and particularly amongst Palestinians. So that seems to be that Israel is no longer the victim here. The Palestinians are the victims. Uh, I, I think that might be a temporary uh, reality because I think the, in, in the long run and indeed in the mid run, uh, uh, people. Uh, at least uh, in America, that the youth will recognize that the ideals they want, uh, the ideals of justice and peace that they want, and they're admirable ideas, they are not represented by Hamas. Hamas is not a force that is in favor of pluralism. Hamas is not a force that is in favor of a woman's rights, in favor of the rights of gays and lesbians to live peaceful lives, or that uh, is not in favor of the uh, the fact that Israel is there and has a right now to exist. Like whatever you have uh, about what happened in 1948, Israel is a reality there now. And I think the majority of the Palestinians, uh, including, I would bet, the majority of the uh, Gazans, uh, now realize that the same way out of this is to accept the reality and accept that they need to live peacefully together in defined, definable uh, borders and uh, with governments that do not 
accept, do not condone, do not engage in the kind of terrorist activities that Hamas engaged in. You know, uh, they absolutely, I agree with you. When they went in and killed uh, 1,400 uh, people, uh, mostly innocent civilians, uh, they knew that Netanyahu was going to uh, attack. Uh, maybe they didn't know how ferociously and how sustained the attack would be. That's why they're now trying to mobilize international community for a ceasefire. But they knew that this was going to happen. They knew they were uh, destroying the lives of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and putting them uh, at the mercy of uh, bombardment. They knew that. Uh, that's what they were calculating for. Uh, but I think... They missed the calculation because of the ferocity of the attack and continuation of the attack. And now they're asking everybody in the world to help uh, stop it. As you say, it's something they started. Well, Abbas Malani, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Abbas Malani, who's Director of Iranian Studies and a professor at the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University, who until 1986 taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Center for International Relations. And his books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the delegation of Republicans led by House Speaker Mike Johnson to the southern border today to grandstand as they weaponize immigration rather than deal with the crisis. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lee Gallant, who is a lawyer at the UCLA's National Office in New York and a professor at Columbia Law School, widely recognized as one of the country's leading public interest lawyers. He has argued some of the country's highest profile cases before the Supreme Court and virtually every federal court of appeals in the country, including a national class action challenge to the Trump administration's family separation policies, successful challenges to the Trump administration's first and second asylum bans, and the first case challenging the Trump Muslim ban. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lee Gallant. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Lee. And House Speaker Mike Johnson led a delegation of, of more than 60 House Republicans to the border today, the southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas. And one of the uh, members of this delegation, Representative Andy Biggs, said... No more money for this bureaucracy of this government until you've brought this border under control. Shut the border down or shut the government down. And that's a less unveiled uh, threat because there are two, there were just two weeks before the deadlines to fund the, the U.S. government. So what do you think is going to happen? I do not know. Um, you know, I think the politics are dominating what's going on rather than trying to figure out a sensible solution to the border. 
I do not think we can shut the border down even if we wanted to. Uh, but I also think that we shouldn't be trying to end asylum in the United States. We made a solemn promise after World War II that we wouldn't send people back to danger without a screening. That doesn't mean everyone ultimately gets asylum, but we at least make sure that we've screened them properly to, to ensure that they are not going to be sent back to danger. I think people who are saying, let's just shut down the border, are discarding one of the fundamental tenets of the United States, that we will be a safe refuge for people in danger. But surely the politics of this have to do with the Republicans in the House, uh, with this new speaker, using funding for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan, etc., as leverage to force the Biden administration to accept some of their extreme demands, which involve what you just suggested, which is ending asylum. And if Biden has to cave in on that, he will obviously lose a lot of Latino votes and, and a lot of votes from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that's already upset about what's happening in Gaza. So it's hard for me, Lee, not to see this really being all about 2024 election politics. Well, I don't disagree that that's what's going on. Uh, we hope that President Biden can stand strong and you know, commit to what he said he was going to do when he was elected, which is have a humane immigration system. I do think it's a political miscalculation to some extent by the Biden administration, because I, I think they will lose votes on the left. But I'm not sure that no matter what they do, they're not going to continuously be attacked about immigration from the other side. And, and the other thing I would say is when you have desperate people they're going to come no matter what U.S. policy is. We saw that when there was the Title 42 policy that tried to shut down asylum on the pretext that it was necessary to fight COVID. People are going to come no matter what. The only real solution is to have a more streamlined procedure for asylum. And, and no one is against that. We just need to put in place a reasonable process. It's going to take money and it's going to take people rolling up their sleeves but all that's happening is people want to talk tough, given the politics. We have ways to have a streamlined process. In fact, the Biden administration put out regulations that would have streamlined the process, but they never committed to them. And, and as importantly, Congress never provided the, the resources to put in place that streamlined procedure. I, I think what's happening is people want to use it as a political wedge issue when if they provided money, we could have a streamlined process that allowed people to have asylum, but the process didn't take years and years and years. And that's what we need. But what experts have always said, and what I've seen over my 30 years doing this work is when people are that desperate, they're going to come no matter what U.S. policy is. So just saying the border's closed is not going to stop people from coming. Well, when you say people are desperate, I mean, the trip to the United States for these refugees from Cuba and Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, etc. Those that go through the Darien Gap, over 500,000 went through the Darien Gap in 2023. And it's the most hideous, dangerous trip, the snake bites, constantly predators robbing, beating them, killing them. 
and then it get, it doesn't get any better as they go through Central America up, up through Mexico and they get to the border. They've been robbed so many times. Talk about desperation. This is this is cruel and inhumane what's happening to these people before they even well, get to the United States. You're, you're exactly right. And you're putting your finger on something that's so important. I, I think there's a misconception out there among a lot of people that people are going to come even if things are, are not they're not in danger in their home countries. And it's just not true. People do not want to go through this journey. Do they do not want to, they do not want to uproot their lives, take their children on this journey. People are going to only do it if they're desperate. And given what you, you know, you've outlined it nicely and just how dangerous the journey is. And, and I think that's what, what's going on is no one's going to undertake that kind of journey if they weren't in real danger or absolutely desperate. So they're going to come no matter what, and we just need to have a streamlined procedure, both so that the border can be orderly and so that we can fulfill our domestic and humanitarian obligations to provide at least a screening for asylum. And, you know, one of the things that I hope when people go to the border is they don't just look at the numbers. I think we're losing the human dimension in constant discussion of aggregate statistics and abstract policy arguments you need to talk to these families to see their children to see what they're trying to escape before you say we're just going to shut the border down and have no more asylum if we don't have asylum in the united states not only would it be a break from our past and our commitments after world war ii but we'd be breaking from the rest of the 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 world basically to not have an asylum system but the fact that these people go through such danger and hardship to get to the United States, the idea that all you need to do is get tougher on the border, that's not going to deter people who've already been through unbelievable hell. So there's nothing that we can do that's, that's worse than what they've already gone through. Well, exactly. And, you know, one of the interesting things is when the Trump administration engaged in family separation, which I think most of your listeners will know about, when the Trump administration decided to take little children away from their parents, they did it because they thought, well, this will deter families from coming. If the word gets back that you'll lose your child, no one will come. People came anyway. And when I talked to families, I was the counsel in that case. And when I talked to families who had gotten here and asked them, would you have come anyway if you had known your child was going to be taken they just threw up their hands and shrugged and said, what choice did I have? I couldn't stay and be killed or let my child be killed. And so it's exactly to your point. We are not going to deter people who are that desperate from coming to the United States. So the only way to deal with it is to provide the money and allow the Biden administration to put in place a humanitarian streamlined, streamlined process for dealing with it. So, Legal, what is going on then with these meetings in the Senate between Senator James Lankford, Republican of Oklahoma, and Democrat Chris Murphy of Connecticut? Yeah, so there's not been a lot of transparency, which is a problem. Um, and we do not know exactly what's on the table at this point, at this very minute. But what we are hearing are really drastic possibilities. One is to shut down the asylum system. The other is to round up people in the United States and put them in what's called expedited removal, which is a fancy phrase for saying, we can deport you even if you've been here for a long time without any hearing whatsoever. 
We are hearing that they're going to make it, even if they keep asylum, they're going to make it harder to get. We are hearing that they are trying to eliminate the ability to parole people in from countries that are in a real mess and there's real danger in a humanitarian crisis. So at this point, we really don't know what's going on exactly. We hope that a more moderate proposal comes through. But I think even if the Senate were to enact or pass something that was more moderate and preserved the basic due process and asylum features of our system, we don't know what's going to happen in the House. I think I I really do not know what, what's going to happen. Well, there's already been suggestions coming from Stephen Miller, who was the point man on immigration in the Trump administration, um, who would play a very prominent role if Trump were to be re-elected. And Trump himself, there's talk of concentration camps, isn't there? Uh, there what we have seen are thoughts that if the Trump administration comes back, family separation is not off the table, these huge camps where they're going to round people up for deportation. I think, I suspect there's going to be racial, religious, and ideological profiling. Um, I think we can expect the worst if the Trump administration were to come back, for sure. So, legal end, just for a moment, let's discuss what's happening now with the people that are already in the system. My understanding is that there's a lack of resources, particularly immigration judges, etc., to the point where asylum seekers already in the system, it takes you five years before you even get into a court hearing. Uh, and that means you sit in limbo for five years, and I'm not sure exactly where you would be in that situation. And given that we've just what we've just discussed, whatever the circumstances are now, they're likely to get a lot worse, uh, particularly under a Trump administration. So tell us what happens as we speak today with those already in the system. Is it true that you don't even get a hearing for five years? So the, the timeline can vary, but I, but I but it is true that it takes far too long and potentially years, like you said, to get a hearing. And I think everyone agrees that we need to streamline that. But instead of treating it as a political wedge issue, I think Congress needs to appropriate more money so that we can have more judges and move it quicker. And one of the things that will also move it quicker, but everyone's resisting, is providing lawyers. Because one reason there's such a long delay is people ask for continuances to try and find lawyers or they don't understand the process. If there are lawyers there triaging the cases, things would move much more quickly. And so I think we can start by providing lawyers. We need more immigration judges. There's no question. So that's all part of a streaming, streamlining process that we can engage in if we're actually serious about doing something and don't want to just talk about it as, as a political issue. But uh, the one thing I would say is that when asylum seekers are waiting for their hearings, they are in limbo and it is very tough on their families. But because they get work authorization, they are contributing to society and the economy. People do not come here just to sit around. They come to work. They have real work ethic. And I think we could even provide work authorization much quicker than the current system, which a lot requires six months. I think that's one of the things you hear from a lot of, including Democratic mayors, saying, well, look, if they're going to be here, let's have them work. They want to work, but they can't work legally until they get their work permit, which takes six months. But your overall point is right. We need to streamline the system, but we can't go to the other extreme and just end asylum. 
So these people are not necessarily in limbo. They're able to work and find, uh, I guess many of them or some of them may have relatives. Is that, so it's not, the current system doesn't mean that people are stuck in detention. Well, you know, that, that's an important point, and, I, and I, I glossed over that, and I should not have. Some people are in detention, and so that's horrendous to be putting people without criminal convictions who are just seeking asylum in detention. But even those who are not in detention are in a type of limbo, a serious type of limbo, because they don't know what's going to happen with them, with their lives. If they lose their asylum case, they're going to be sent back to the kind of danger that they fled from, they don't know how to start building a family because they may not end up staying here. They can't really put down roots until they find out what's going to happen in their asylum case. So if that takes years, they are really living with that kind of fear every day that they may be sent back to danger. So even if they're not in detention, they are in limbo in that sense, in that very real sense. It's just that they can work and we should allow them to work to contribute but we need to move the system quicker so that people are not in that psychological limbo. So, legal and just in the last couple of minutes, Mike Johnson, who's led this delegation of more than 60 Republicans to the border today, said, quote, Democrats across the country are starting to recognize reality. There must be transformational change to secure the border and end the crisis caused by President Biden's policies. Well, the crisis was not caused by President Biden's policies. The crisis was caused by the House uh, Tea Party caucus back in 2013 when there was a comprehensive immigration bill that passed the Senate and it was blocked by the Tea Party in the House. And that scuttled a system that would have solved most of a lot of these problems we're talking about. And, of course, we know that the Tea Party has morphed into the Freedom Caucus, which is in many ways the tail that wags the dog of the Republican conference. So hypocrisy is hardly sufficient a word to describe that. Yeah, I, I think, and that, and that's what I mean by people want to use it as a political wedge issue rather than trying to genuinely solve the problems. I think both sides need to get together and genuinely solve the problem and not keep it as a political issue. You know, we haven't had serious talks about comprehensive immigration reform since that time. I don't envision any serious talks about comprehensive immigration reform in the immediate future, at least from what I'm hearing. And all we're hearing is let's shut the border down. Let's talk tough about it without any serious effort to deal with people like the dreamers that, you know, the young people who came when they were when they were children, uh, all, all the other people that need help putting in a process that streamlines uh, asylum. I mean, we're, we're a country of immigrants and all of a sudden we're forgetting that we are a country of immigrants and that a lot of people are here on U.S. soil because there was an asylum system and now people are turning their back on it and that's unfortunate. Well, Legal Land, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. 
And again, I've been speaking with Lee Gallant, who's a lawyer at the ACLU's National Office in New York and a professor at Columbia Law School, widely recognised as one of the country's leading public interest lawyers. He has argued some of the country's highest profile cases before the Supreme Court and virtually every federal court of appeals in the country, including a national class action challenge to the Trump administration's family separation policies, successful challenges to the Trump administration's first and second asylum bans, and the first case challenging the Trump Muslim ban. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring the root causes of the immigration crisis that is being demagogued with toxic partisanship that will intensify in this critical election year. I ain't got no home. I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker. I go from town to town. And the police make it hard wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. My brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road A hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod Rich man took my home and drove me from my door And I ain't got no home in this world anymore Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing Available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Maureen Meyer, who's the Vice President for Programs at the Washington Office of Latin America, where she previously spent 14 years leading their Mexico program with a special focus on analyzing U.S.-Mexico security policies and advocated for greater protections for migrants and asylum seekers in Mexico and at the United States-Mexico border. Welcome to Background Briefing, Maureen Meyer. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us in a delegation of Republican congressmen led by the new speaker, Mike Johnson, at the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. And the House Republicans are also planning on impeaching the head of Homeland Security as well because they feel that he's not uh, doing the job. But nobody really is doing the job, are they? Who's securing the border? Who's, who's really doing anything serious and meaningful about solving this incredible problem of a flow of humanity from countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Guatemala, etc. I mean, I think there, there are different um, actions that are being undertaken, including by the Biden administration to try to address uh, the, the historic flows of migrants through the region. I think the administration has worked to expand different legal pathways for migrants from certain nationalities. Uh, there's humanitarian parole now for Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, Haitians, and um, Cubans, as many other programs. And they're trying to to both work as well as pressure governments in the region to do more to um, receive more migrants in, in their home countries. That said, I think what we have seen is certainly a, a shortcoming in terms of addressing the magnitude of the, the number of people arrive, arriving at the border and a real lack of coordination between the federal government and state and local governments to more effectively receive and secure like placement and support for the thousands of people that are arriving at the border every day. And of course, the federal government is about to sue the state of Texas for usurping federal prerogatives on border control. Exactly. They have threatened um, that if the, the government moves forward with this law, which would give uh, state law enforcement officials the ability to deport migrants back to Mexico, uh, they have said that, that you know, it is illegal. That is a federal government purview, a federal law. 
Uh, I would say the Mexican government has also um, contemplated legal actions. Um, they're pre preparing uh, an official response. Uh, Mexico's president, Lopez Obrador, has also soundly rejected the Texas government uh, proposals. So there's there's a lot going on, and clearly we're also front of uh, a big budget discussion in Congress in which uh, border security and access to asylum are all tied up. So let's talk about the source of the problem or the sources of the problem in the sense that where the, the outflow of migrants is coming from. And there was an interesting article a couple of days ago in The Guardian, Plane Detained in France Sheds Light on Nicaragua's Role in U.S. Migrant Crisis. And this flight uh, that was detained contained 303 Indian passengers en route to Central America because uh, Nicaragua has very, very light visa requirements for people that want to come to the United States. And it indicates that, of course, the Nicaraguan dictator Ortega, who rigged the 2021 elections and has since then jailed most of his opposition and banned any kind of public demonstrations quite brutally, he is weaponizing migration. But what's interesting about that article, what's the extent to which it's people from around the world, not just from Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua and Guatemala and, and other countries that there's been a, a steady flow of migrants coming from. So what does the international landscape look like to you? Um, I, I think we've certainly seen historic levels of people traveling throughout the region, um, from the region and from beyond. I would say that at almost every month lately, Mexicans have actually had the highest nationality crossing the border. So we shouldn't forget that Mexican migration and people fleeing persecution continue even from our, our, our southern border, uh, but also Central Americans, but more and more people from many other nationalities, over, five, over half a million people, 520,000 crossed the Daring Gap this past year. Uh, roughly 40-50% were from Venezuelan, but we see many people from African countries, from Asia. There's been a spike in, in Chinese migrants, in part, you know, speaking to the desperation that people feel in their home countries, the lack of economic opportunities, to cases of political persecution from people living under authoritarian governments, including um, Cuba, Venezuela. Um, and elsewhere. And so I think it is certainly historic levels, but also from populations that are very distinct to what the U.S. had experienced historically, which was primarily Mexican migration and then Central American migration, to now having people from throughout the world, which represent a lot more challenges, both in processing in linguistic challenges, as well as how do you, um, if they are deemed, you know, there's no legal possibilities in the United States, how do you return them in high numbers back to their home countries? But the human toll, and and you mentioned the Darien Gap between Colombia and Panama, which is just the most rugged, formidable jungle, where people are just dying on the way, and snake bites, and they're constantly being marauded by gangs and robbed. I mean, the people that go through this route, the half a million plus that you just mentioned, Maureen, by the time they get to the United States border, they've been robbed several times, have they not? Absolutely. Um, I think um, we have heard from migrants that have crossed through the Daring Gap that were arriving in, in Honduras that, that said they had no idea what they were getting into when they went through it in terms of um, how rough and how persecuted they throughout the journey. But I will say it's also throughout the, the whole route. Uh, 32 
Migrants were kidnapped in Mexico the other day, close to the U.S.-Mexico border. Migrants are frequently subject to extortion by Mexican security agents, by immigration agents. They're abused, uh, robbed, kidnapped from criminal groups. There have been abuses by authorities, security authorities from Panama to Guatemala. So I think what, what this so says, though, is people are facing numerous risks to their lives and well-being, whether it's natural risks like crossing the Darien Gap or the Arizona desert, to being persecuted. And yet they're willing to take that risk because they have hope of a better life and their lives may be at risk in their home country. But the article that I mentioned in The Guardian uh, about the charter flight that was detained mm -hmm. in France containing 303 Indian nationals on their way to Nicaragua, those people were paying between 48000 and 150000 dollars And of course, they've been sent back to India now. And then the flights coming out of Venezuela uh, and from Havana to uh, Managua, Nicaragua, there uh, people are being charged 1500 uh, or up to 4000 for the, f the full package to get you to Mexico. And of course, as you mentioned, that's not quite as advertised, is it? No, and, and I think, you know, what this says is who makes money off of these vulnerable people are large smuggling networks, and in this case, charter corporations that work with them that are selling dreams to vulnerable people, um, often at tens of thousands of dollars. And so I do think that it shows that when there's a lack of legal pathways for people to migrate to different countries who profits are organized criminal networks. So early on in the administration, President Biden dispatched Vice President Harris to Central America, to Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, which were the original flows were happening earlier on in the Biden administration. But now they've been supplanted by the flows from uh, Venezuela, Cuba, and other countries as well, including, I guess, Nicaragua. Although, as we mentioned, Ortega is weaponizing migration and using it as leverage against the U.S. so that they'll lift sanctions, so that Biden will lift sanctions on uh, his cronies. So what's the status then of that effort to deal with the, the problem at its roots? Um, there, Vice President Harris and others in the administration still focus work on addressing the root causes of migration from Central America, including uh, the Central America um, Forward and Prosperity um, programs, which are looking at how do you promote private investment and getting more foreign um, investment into Central America, as well as U.S. foreign assistance. Uh, but I think, as you said, it, it was certainly uh, a short-sighted strategy, thinking that migration was primarily from Central America and not looking at this as a regional um, phenomenon or a global phenomenon. I will say since last year, the Biden administration's also promoted um, through the Summit of the Americas process, what is known as the Los Angeles Declaration on Migration and Protection that was signed by the US and 20 other countries in the region that looks to have a more regional response to migration. The U.S. has designated over $2 billion in humanitarian assistance to the region, in part to address um, regional migration flows, uh, assistance to local communities, improving other countries' asylum systems. So I think they have started to look at this from a regional level, um, but it's, it's probably nowhere near the, the investment that we need. And in the end, we see the administration want more time and time again falling back on deterrence. 
and working with governments like the Mexican government and, and others where they can to see what they can do to reduce the number of people that are able to reach the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, for example, in Guatemala, there's a reformist government that's been elected, but the entrenched crooks, you know, the politicians tied to drug cartels and the military junta, they're shamelessly trying to prevent the new president from taking office. Now, there's been some good news, I guess, in Honduras as a change of government there away from a previous government, which was run by a drug-dealing family, believe it or not. And you've got this techno-tyrant in, in running El Salvador. So how does it look to you then, uh, Maureen, in terms of dealing with the root cause, which is to get decent governance? Um, I think the, the Biden administration, typically from the U.S. perspective, is trying to work with the governments that it can and where it can. Um, and so in the case of Honduras, for example, they continue to see how they can support the Castro government, particularly on rule of law and anti-corruption efforts. I, I do think they view um, President-elect Arevalo, and hopefully he'll be inaugurated, taking office on January 14th as a real opportunity to continue to move forward or to, to restore democracy and the rule of law in a country like Guatemala. And then you have situations like El Salvador, where I think the, the Biden administration is taking an approach that they, they, they realize being so harshly critical of Bukele wasn't winning them any um, any points in El Salvador, and I think in somewhat troublingly from the human rights advocacy community has now uh, taken a more conciliatory tone with with Bukele and and working trying to work with with him on economic issues and others, often at the expense of speaking out about concerns on democracy and his uh, wanting to re be re-elected president, even though he's constitutionally barred from doing so, or to speaking out forcefully about the human rights violations that have occurred during the state of exception. Um, I think we've always seen uh, with U.S. foreign policy towards the region that it seeks to, in part, uh, work to with who they can in the region, but often also at their own interests. And I think right now one of the primary interests that the administration has is working to do everything possible to reduce the number of migrants and people traveling through the region because they're also thinking of 2024 elections coming up and, and the need to have a, a border that looks more manageable than it currently does. So what went on, do you think, in the recent meeting uh, between Secretary of State Blinken and uh, López Obrador AMLO, the president of Mexico. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about fentanyl, but there's always been this problem. I just mentioned the drug-dealing family that previously were previously in uh, Honduras. There's always been this problem, hasn't there, with, with drugs coming from south of the border because it's the United States that has an appetite for these drugs. So our focus has always been on going after the drug lords, but not dealing with the demand side. Is that dynamic ever going to change? Um, I think we'd need to really shift a, a full mentality away from the, the war on drugs um, to, to see that fully change. I think um, we have had some small steps taken by the Biden administration to address more demand for drugs and talk about phrases like harm reduction. How do you re reduce the harm uh, that illicit drugs cause on the population? But again, the focus has been primarily on 
trying to stop the supply of drugs from reaching the U.S., um, including with Mexico. I think the, the recent meeting between Secretaries Blinken and Mayorkas and President López Obrador seemed very cordial. They issued a very general statement about how great the meeting was uh, without any real details. But I think what the U.S. likely got out was a commitment by Mexico to increase immigration enforcement. Once again, uh, Mexico just launched another set of uh, deportation flights to, to Venezuela. So certainly increasing um, deterrence from the Mexican government's point of view. And uh, I think what López Obrador has gotten time and time again from the Biden administration is silence on other big concerns such as uh, Mexico's human rights record, the growing role of the Mexican military in many parts of Mexican life, and concerns about democratic backsliding in the country. And so I think, you know, the, the U.S. views Mexico as a strategic partner on immigration, and that often comes at the expense of not raising other um, important and, and tough issues with the Mexican government. So just in closing then, Maureen, is there any possibility of, of a serious effort on the part, uh, given the poisonous and toxic partisanship that exists where the House Republicans are holding hostage um, money for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan uh, in order to get a border deal. And obviously it's all about politics because the Republicans know that Biden is vulnerable and the more Biden goes along with the harsher Republican plan, the more he alienates Latino voters and it hurts his re-election chances. So that's the game that's being played. And uh, you know, back in 2013, there was a uh, comprehensive immigration deal that even passed the Senate and uh, was scuttled in the House by the then Tea Party, which has now morphed into the Freedom Caucus, uh, which is the tail that wags the dog of the House Republican conference. So what's your sense then, just in closing here, is there any possibility of some adult behavior here? And is it just predetermined that because it's an election year, that politics will trump serious efforts to deal with this crisis? I think it's looking increasingly unlikely that we'll see movement, even if there is a, a bipartisan deal reached in the Senate, which um, which may still happen, although also looks unlikely. Um, it, it appears um, like in, improbable that we'll have any movement in the House. House Republicans um, under Speaker Johnson have been very clear that they view as a baseline the resolution they passed in May of last year, which was even more extreme in terms of curtailing access to asylum, reinstating uh, policies like Remain in Mexico that were forcing asylum seekers to wait in Mexico um, for their asylum hearings in the U.S., subjecting them to numerous counts of kidnapping, sexual harassment, extortion, etc. So I think it is a case, just as you mentioned, um, Ortega weaponizing migration, where Republicans have continually weaponized migration and the border. It is uh, an issue that unites Republicans um, on border security and reducing migration, and an issue that we're seeing more and more divides the Democrat Party in terms of where they want to see the, the country go on immigration. And when we've had several local authorities from the New York City mayor to Chicago and elsewhere express a lot of concern about the number of migrants um, that are arriving in their communities and their ability to absorb them. So I think it is a, a tough issue, but I think we're seeing more and more photo ops like the visit today at the border that may look good for the, the base, but really aren't going to move the country forward in terms of discussing 
what border security should look like, let alone what comprehensive immigration reform or access to asylum should be in the United States. Well, Maureen Meyer, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. My pleasure. And again, I'll be speaking with Maureen Meyer, who is the Vice President for Programs at the Washington Office of Latin America, where she previously spent 14 years leading their Mexico program with a special focus on analyzing U.S.-Mexico security policies and advocated for greater protections for migrants and asylum seekers in Mexico and at the U.S.-Mexico border. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. America.